Our Old Testament reading this morning comes to us uh, from the book of the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter, beginning verse 31 and continuing through verse 34. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as the prophet has these words for the people of God. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning has to do with the triumphant entry of the king. Uh, But in the gospel according to John in the 12th chapter beginning at verse 20, uh, this has already taken place. We find ourselves in Jerusalem uh, hours, maybe minutes after Jesus has come into the gates of that city. And I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there Written. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me The Father will honor. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. As noted in the chronology of the gospel according to John, we have here put the cart before the proverbial horse, or in this case, ahead of the proverbial donkey. For the festival that is being referred to here at the start of our reading was the Passover of the Jews. And if we had looked at the preceding section of text, we would have read the story that we will read next week. The story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on what has become known as Palm Sunday. But as that is the text for next week, we'll save it And skip ahead to the events that took place after Jesus has arrived within the walls 
of that great city. Here in the fourth gospel, we are told this involves being sought by at least some in this crowd who were there for the festival of the Passover who were not Jews, but Gentiles. They may have been a part of a group that had an interest in or a fascination with the God of the Jews, these so-called God-fearers. And Greece may have actually been the place of their ethnic origin, but other New Testament writers have shown us that the Greeks can also be shorthand for anyone who is a Gentile, regardless of their ethnography. Regardless, it's out of the ordinary enough for non-Jews to be seeking after the presumptive Jewish Messiah that the author of this gospel makes it a point of recording this event. It's the only mention in any of the gospels that this happens during Passover. Now, their spokesman, we are told, contacts one of the disciples and makes of him a request which is here so rendered thusly, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In the King James, this text is rendered, Sir, we would see Jesus. I know it is because it says it right here on the pulpit. I have to say I prefer this translation myself, although these are somewhat rather intimidating words to see every week when I step, step up here and they greet me. Uh, they're not uncommon in older churches. Many others that I've been to have the same inscription on their pulpits, and it's not a bad reminder. It is a bit humbling, but it's not a bad reminder of the gravity of the office of a minister. The duty of the minister is to relay the scriptures to the assembled people in such a way that they may see Jesus. In this morning's appointed gospel lectionary reading, the people have come to the disciples asking Jesus' followers for aid in getting to meet, to see the Master. And I think that our world may still yet be inquiring of his servants every now and again this same request. Then, of course, the disciples could have just simply escorted these guests to the place where Jesus was in the midst of this throng of people on that Passover week, and they could have had a direct encounter with him. But before this can happen, when Jesus hears of these people who are seeking him, he, he doesn't respond to the request that has come to him immediately. Instead, he starts this teaching, this difficult and troubling teaching for his disciples, speaking of his own impending death, saying that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it might have been easy for the disciples to mistake hearing those words as an affirmation of what the crowd wanted. Here, Jesus has come. He has made his entry into the capital city of the Jews. The people are ready to 
anoint him as the presumptive king. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, but not that way. Very truly, he then tells them, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Of his own death, then, he is speaking both prophetically and metaphorically. Within the week, it would indeed come to pass, as would a resurrection that was to be the first fruits of the life to come for all of creation. And then Jesus goes on, and he speaks in terms of the death of his followers. Of the death of his followers, he is speaking both literally, prophetically, for many of his disciples would themselves in time be martyred. At the same time, Jesus is speaking metaphorically for all those who would subsequently come to commit their lives to his cause. When he talks of losing one's life, he's warning that there is a very high price to be paid for being a disciple of his. If we are going to give Jesus our allegiance, well then, that means we cannot pledge our allegiance anywhere else. Not to Caesar, as the empire required. Not to Herod, as the Jews might have preferred. Not to self, as we continue to have a fondness for doing even today. A person cannot, after all, serve two masters. No, whatever it is that we worship before has to go. Whatever we held as most important before has to go. Whatever dreams we had for ourselves have to be let go to die so that a new set of dreams, those cast by God, can become the source of our affection and our operation. The imagery of the grain is at once both simple and complex. It is stark and yet it is hopeful. We, like the individual seeds, well, we are only capable of so much on our own, but we have been endowed by our Creator with a wealth of gifts. To bring them to light, we have to offer them back to our Maker and our brothers and sisters in the world through our dying to self. That's the hard outer shell that keeps our true potential from being unlocked. That's the self. This is so countercultural, isn't it? In a world that is chock full of self-help professionals who want to enable us to discover and unlock the hidden potential that exists within us, Jesus said 2,000 years back that the path to such enlightenment is to abandon the search for such enlightenment and instead to trust and believe not in us, but in the one who placed all this within us in the first place. Even Jesus himself wasn't capable of doing all that he was uniquely qualified to do and specifically chosen 
and charged to do by the Father had he not made his own will subservient. Had he not put self aside so far that he was willing to literally die to bring new life to all of creation. In this morning's reading from the Old Testament, we hear the prophet Jeremiah foretell of a future day, a day when a new covenant has come following the old, a day when the Lord saith, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the knowledge of the law of God will no longer be found only on engraved tablets, but instead it will reside within the minds and the hearts of all of God's people. But to live into that knowledge, and for the God who gifts us with this divine law, we have to die to our own gods first. We must cease being our own people if we are to be His people, if we are to be the church. The church is the only is the church is only the church when it exists for others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote while in prison awaiting his own execution. Put another way, we are the people who have been created to be only when we are not the people we create ourselves to be. We have been created in the image of God. The vessel does not get to tell the potter what it wants to look like. Sir, we would see Jesus. The world still occasionally asks from time to time, what is the faithful response of his disciples today? We are the ones who have to mediate the presence of Jesus when we hear this plea. We are the ones who are called to speak Jesus, to live Jesus, to show Jesus for those who have come wanting to see Jesus. I have with me this morning a copy of a letter that came in this week from Steve Adkins, our, our local sponsored missionary. He's sent us an update. You'll hear the, the full update next week as part of our moment for mission, but I just wanted to lift out of it a little teaser This week, he writes, Much of the lost world may never enter our church buildings, yet our assignment is to help point them to Jesus. A couple of images that help me visualize this process of living into this new life that is not our own come from the arts. One is a 16th century magnum opus of Matthias Grunwald, a German painter. Over the span of about four years, he worked on a series of panels which were set in intricately carved frames done by another enormously talented artist of the area. The Eisenheim altarpiece, as it came to be called, was installed in a monastery that specialized in the treatment of plague victims, lepers, and others with skin diseases in a a region where my ancestors hail from, outside of Colmar in Alsace. I would have included for you an image of this remarkable work of art 
on the cover of this morning's bulletin, but the work is so expansive that such a small cover as we have on our bulletin would, would do it no justice at all. I invite you to, to look it up. Uh, on one of the central panels, Christ is depicted on the cross with his mother and John standing off to the sides. He has his arm elevated and his finger is pointing to the one on the cross. This disciple is memorialized in this piece as pointing to Jesus. The second illustration is musical and much more contemporary. In fact, the song referenced is a fairly new release within the last few months by a singer-songwriter named Zach Williams. You may hear it if you tune into a local Christian radio station or if you listen to music online. The title is A Little More Like Jesus. And the refrain from it goes like this. A little more like mercy, a little more like grace, a little more like kindness and goodness, love and faith, a little more like patience, a little more like peace, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. Demonstrating these things may be easy to sing about, but it's a very tall order indeed, for Jesus himself tells those who desire to follow him, to imitate him, that it involves our death. We simply cannot be the things, the people we are called to be without killing off our own will. On this, the fifth Sunday in Lent, it's a very appropriate time to face this sobering fact. The life of Christ is leading to a cross, a cross on Calvary, a place where the ominous words of Jesus will come to fruition, where the power of evil will do their utmost to assert their authority, so too our life in Christ is leading us into the valley of the shadow of death. We know that the stakes of this story are high. But we also know who is the author of this story and how it shall end in victory to the surprise of the powers of darkness that orchestrated it, and to the Jewish and the Roman authorities who perpetrated it, Jesus' death was not the end. It was a new beginning. And just so. The start of a new life which the Messiah has in turn guaranteed for us. We who had heretofore been prisoners to sin and death. In this new life, we are no longer seeds but fruit. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. If we are to show the world Jesus, we should not be acting, speaking, living as those who are still buried in the ground. We've been given a new identity to rise up into, and daunting and difficult as it may be at times, it is. A wonderful, great gift for which we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.